Welcome back to Good Dirt, conversations with leaders in real estate and beyond. We are your hosts, Mike and Tom Greeley of Newmark, and we are glad you all tuned in this week for an incredibly insightful conversation with John Fish, chairman and CEO of Suffolk. Suffolk, as many of you know, is a national real estate enterprise with over $6 billion annual revenue, 2,600 employees, and headquarters here in Boston, but offices around the country, including in New York, Miami, West Palm Beach, Dallas, LA, and the list goes on. Suffolk manages some of the most complex, sophisticated projects in the country, serving clients in every major industry sector, including healthcare, life sciences, education, gaming, transportation, and aviation, government, and commercial. You don't have to travel very far to come into a project that Suffolk has either recently completed or is underway on. What we hear about in this conversation is fascinating in many ways, but really the depth and breadth at which Suffolk is doing business around the country, it's not only just in the conventional construction regard, but there's also a lot more to the company, which John shares with us today. A couple of quick notes about John Fish. If you're in the Northeast, you're probably very familiar with this, but you probably wouldn't want us to say powerful. But just as far as being plugged in and active and helping move the community forward, John Fish is probably in a category of his own today. He's a public figure as much as a builder. He's a philanthropist, a civic leader. He's incredibly high in demand in the city. And so for that reason, we we really appreciate him coming on here. And thanks to John and and Nora Kennedy for helping to set it up. We really uh, appreciate the uniqueness of being able to spend an hour with John. We'll talk about a few of these, but just to get a feel for John's schedule on a daily basis, in addition to running Suffolk, he's also the chair of Brigham Women's Hospital, and he sits on the executive committee of Mass General Brigham, one of the largest and most important nonprofit healthcare organizations in the country, in a really important role in today's challenging healthcare environment. He's also the chair of the board at Boston College, and he's in his second term there, near and dear to our hearts as alums, but also these positions and these board roles I think also give John an opportunity to be surrounded and interact with folks from all walks of life, but really all different categories of commerce, education, and healthcare. And all of those inputs really inform him on a daily basis. So I love being around John just because you learn a lot. We try to stay out of the way on all these conversations and hear from our guest, especially in this one, though. If you just sort of hang around and soak up what John has to say, you know he's hearing from some of the smartest people in the country, and the information you get is just terrific. Today, you'll hear about how he built and grew Suffolk, how he views today's challenge and development environment, and his purview into the intersection of policy and real estate as the chairperson of the Real Estate Roundtable. That's a very unique perspective. We'll cover all that and more, and I think you'll really learn a lot as we did in this hour. Many of you have asked when we're going to get John Fish on. Today's the day. We hope you enjoy it and share with your colleagues, clients, and friends. This is a big day for us. We were hoping when we started the series, we'd get John Fish on one day. So maybe we peaked too early, but we're very, very excited to have him on. Thanks, everyone, and enjoy. Welcome back to Good Dirt, conversations with leaders in real estate and beyond. Today, we're here for a highly anticipated discussion with John Fish, Chair and CEO of Suffolk Construction. John, we're very excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Mike and Tom, it's a real honor and privilege to be with you today. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming on. And for me personally, I started my real estate career here as an intern in 2008 and 2009. So it's good to be back. A lot has changed. There are a lot of familiar faces, but it's great to be back at the Suffolk World Headquarters here. Well, Tom, thank you. And don't ever forget the door is always open. So, 
John, we like to start in the beginning on these on these conversations. Hear a little bit about your background, your upbringing, your schooling. But before we do, you know, Suffolk is a brand that most of our listeners know. But if you could give us a couple minutes on Suffolk Construction, what you've built here, and where you are today. Well, again, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's an again honor and privilege to be here today, and I'm proud to talk about Suffolk and also try to talk about anything else that you'd like to discuss. Suffolk, and I say this very, very humbly, it's a national organization, and I describe to people what we do from a headline point of view. We build, we invest, and we innovate. And what I mean by that is you need to understand our strategy as an organization, and our strategy is at a high level is to integrate the entire building life cycle into a seamless platform. How do we do that? Well, one, we focus on our core business, which is buildings. At heart, we are a builder, and we never want to forget that. That's what we make our money at, and that's what we do each and every day. We have a high degree of pride doing that. And also, in addition to that, what we do do is, as a result of that, we created an environment where we have 12 offices around the country. We work in almost all geographical areas at the end of the day, and we work in multiple sectors. So education, healthcare, commercial residential, and then we have a program called COEs, Centers of Excellence. And those projects are projects that are typically large scale, the national in footprint, and relatively complex, like aviation. We do a tremendous amount of aviation work around the country, working probably about nine different airports throughout the country. We also do what is called mission critical, which are data centers, some relatively highly complex data centers for Apple, Google, Amazon, companies like that, QTS. And those are in somewhat remote areas around the country and sometimes not as remote. It depends a lot on greenfield sites and also the cost of power they do. And we also do a lot of gaming work, large-scale gaming work, like the Wind Casino. So we work with quite a few different gaming companies nationally. We also work a lot of what is called tribal gaming, Indian tribal, like we're doing with the chicken ranch out in Sacramento, California right now. But that is an area where we feel very, very confident in. And lastly, federal government work, which is a very, very big work, as you know, with the, all the federal, large federal government spend. So we do a lot of federal government work around the country as well, too. And that takes a certain level of expertise. So when you take a look at that, as from a building side of things, and you say to yourself, how do we continue to support that sort of integration of the seamless platform? Then it's what we call our verticals. And what our verticals are is the verticals are there to support the core business of Suffolk at the end of the day. And our verticals are, they start with basically at a high level, Suffolk design. We have our own design firm now. We don't do third-party design work. What we do is do design for ourselves, design support, design assist, design build. And why we do that, because we see the age of digitization entering into the architectural space right now. So we're not really architects, we're drawing drawings. We're trying to use technology and digitization to design the buildings. And we believe that is going to be the biggest aspect of transformation and change in our business because we think artificial intelligence is going to drive that through the design side of the business at the end of the day. Then we also have Suffolk Technology which is another vertical. These are companies run by specific individuals. That is a group that really experiments with technological solutions in the built world on our 100 job sites around the country. So let me give you an example. If we're working out in California, in San Francisco, we're doing a project out there, a life science project, and we may have a solution, whether it be a SaaS solution or some other type of, but we'll try it on that particular project with our project teams, and think of that as incubation site, so to speak, a test case. And then we're able to prove whether that solution has legs or doesn't have legs. 
So typically what happens in our environment is those solutions will fail pretty quickly. So we use that really as a very strategic environment and something that really creates tremendous value both for us and the individuals that are trying to grow that particular opportunity. And as a result of that, what we did do as a parenthetical is we started Suffolk Technology, a fund. We raised $110 million this past year, which has been very successful. And we have made to date probably about, for this fund, probably about 12 to 14 investments. Prior to those, that fund, we are, had already made about 16 different investments. And these investments, again, they're in series A or seed categories. Again, what we're doing, we're taking these solutions, we're adding value to the creators of the solutions, and we're seeing if they work. And with Suffolk Technology in the fund, we're able to invest early on and help them grow to the next Series A, Series B, and follow-on rounds. And we're able to have a front seat at the table to see how well, both from a management point of view, and also whether how well the solution will impact the built world going forward. And candidly, we got ranked this past year the number one venture capital firm in our space in the country. So we're very, very proud of that. And we really feel strongly about it, but it's the only way we're going to change sort of the overall paradigm in construction, whereas cost today, for the first time, are greater than the value that you're creating by the build. And if we don't change that, it's really going to be detrimental to our overall, I think, ecosystem here in America, so to speak. So you have those. Then you move on to self-perform. We have a group called Liberty Construction, which we have an equipment business, tower cranes, man lifts, hoist, and things all over the country, which works nicely for ourselves. And we also do self-performing concrete, masonry, and various other types of disciplines in different areas around the country that we have the capabilities and suitability to execute at that level. And we're very, very proud of that. And then lastly, we have a thing called Suffolk Capital, which invests typically. We don't want to be a developer. I want to be clear about that. But we would don't mind investing alongside the developer and typically in the GP stack. We will work in partnership with the developer. We'll promote off the LP. But the idea is, is that can we have alignment of interest with the developer, i.e. skin in the game, and work collaboratively with the developer and the LPs to ensure the success of the project overall? So the idea of developing those particular verticals is in the spirit of trying to create a dynamism in the construction category to give us that visibility and how do we integrate what is now a very, very much siloed, fragmented category and now for the first time has created really an untenable situation because of cost. I knew our biggest challenge in this conversation would be finding and prioritizing what we want to talk about because any of those verticals, any of those businesses, any of those lines of service, we could spend a few hours on. And I think that is the most fascinating thing about being in here with you. We've known you for a long time. We've been fortunate to be around you, watch you grow this business. We've also been able to watch you as a citizen, which we're going to talk about later on in the conversation. But it's exciting for us as people that are in the real estate business just to hear that. And I think our listeners are all going to be excited by that because everyone in the market interacts with you in some way through one of those verticals. But the breadth of what you're doing in this building and globally with all your offices is really inspiring. So we're excited to dive into it. A lot of our guests and a lot of folks out there throw around vertically integrated, but Suffolk clearly walks the walk. And I think our listeners will be fascinated to hear about that. So that was an awesome synopsis, John. And thanks for walking us through that. We'd love to jump back a little bit to the early days of John Fish, you know, your education, 
where you went to school, how that maybe shaped the beginnings of Suffolk Construction, just for our listeners to hear a little bit of the human element. Again, I appreciate you asking that question because it's really personal. And I grew up in a very old-fashioned Irish Catholic family, grew up in Hingham. And with the Irish Catholic twins, my brother and myself, he was a year older than I was. In fact, I think 11 and a half months older than I was. He took over the family business. And one of the things growing up was pretty interesting myself is that we were very, very competitive athletically. And he was probably a better athlete than I was if I was to tell the truth. But I had a severe learning difference, and they didn't really understand what that was early on. So I was always the young age, sort of the dumb, stupid kid walking around and struggling all the time academically. And they didn't understand what dyslexia was back then. And unfortunately, or today, fortunately, I was a severe dyslexic. And so, you know, I struggled through schools and I finally went to a place called Tabor Academy in Marion, Massachusetts back in freshman year where my brother went to Milton Academy. I couldn't get into Milton Academy. And I went down there and I met a coach named Dick Duffy, who I take care of today. I'm the executive of the state. He's you know, 85 years old. He's had five bouts of cancer. I'm very, very proud to be in his life because he was in my life at the time that I needed him. And Tabor taught me to read and Tabor taught me to write. And when I entered Tabor, I could not read. As was, you know, the book called Mice and Men by Steinbeck and The Hobbit by J.R. Token. Those were readings in freshman year that I just could not read. But because of the support that I received at Tabor, I was able to start reading phonetically and I would start reading in a way that really allowed me to start to comprehend. Now, even today, I can't spell past third grade. And at one point in my life, I was embarrassed about that. But today, I'm proud of that because I speak proudly about that. And you could never read my handwriting. But at the end of the day, those shortcomings that I have and I acknowledge have, I think, caused me to be the person I am today with a sense of humility and appreciation for what we have as a team accomplished here at Suffolk. And I often say one of the reasons why my office is in Roxbury here in Boston, never forget where you came from. Never forget. And to move on with my education, then I you know, from Tabor, working hard by my junior and senior, I did relatively well. I was a pretty good athlete. I played football, captain of the baseball in football, and played in varsity hockey. I went on to Bowdoin College, and the only reason I applied to Bowdoin College was Bowdoin College was the only school in the country, competitive school, that didn't require SAT scores. And I got twin 400s, and they didn't require me to submit them. But I was a pretty good athlete, Division three. And I had very good grades by my junior and senior year. And I was fortunate. I applied, got into the early decision to Bowdoin. And Bowdoin changed my life in the sense that it wasn't a lot of fun. And I tell people that very candidly. I've been on the board of Bowdoin and I support the school. But it was tough. It was tough living in the library and everybody else is having a good time with the fraternity systems. But at the end of the day, it taught me a lot about working in what I would consider to be a very, very strong academic environment with a lot of bright people. And I didn't kiss myself at that point in time to be a bright person, but I wanted to play with that particular group. And in order to stay there, I had to do something differently than most people did. And that was work my ass off. And that's exactly what I did. So college wasn't fun, but it was very productive at the end of the day. And that led me into Suffolk. You were sort of in the crucible in some ways at Bowdoin, which a lot of people go to Bowdoin and have a lot of fun. You know, it's a great campus and it's a great school. But it also exposed you to that level of education, which I think just look, walking around this office, you can find a lot of NESCAC athletes. So I think you took that and didn't forget about that part of it. When you got out, your family had a deep history in the construction business. How did you go from getting out of Bowdoin to Suffolk? And what was that like? I really thought, well, to the confident, academic confidence I gained at Bowdoin, that maybe I was thinking maybe going to law school at some point in time because my major was government legal studies. 
But I really had a real strong passion for construction, the family business, PBD Construction, been around for over 100 years, four generations. And I really enjoyed the building side of it. I enjoyed the people side of it. And I enjoyed the idea that you actually were building something physically and you could see at the end of the day what you accomplished. And I listened to my dad speak about that his whole life, who I had a lot of respect for and who was my mentor. Because my brother sort of graduated a little earlier than I did. He took over the family business. And my dad came to me early on, right when I graduated from Bowdoin, said to me, listen, would you be interested in getting involved in a non-union business? Because union was very, very strong back in Boston in the early 80s, late 70s. And you could not have, in theory, a union and a non-union firm. So my dad said to me, I cannot get involved in the non-union side because I'm Peabody, and your brother's going to be coming into Peabody and taking over the business. Would you have an interest of getting involved in a brand-new company, Suffolk? I'll fund the company. It was $80,000 was a loan. But my dad couldn't get directly involved. So my dad put me into the business and I didn't really know what I was doing. The first job was like a 347,000 square foot fit up down in Fall River called PJ Marks or something like that. And my dad was behind the scenes because he couldn't be in the scenes. Right. And my dad helped me and led me down a pathway. And what he did to me is he gave me enough rope to hang myself. Yeah. And I never did. I was very, very fortunate. And as the company continued to grow, you know, I became more confident in my abilities and the company began to move forward in a positive way. But, you know, in retrospect, you think about that. When people give you the opportunity, typically two things happen. To me, it's black and white. You either succeed or you fail. And I want to be clear, my success was a result of many people and many individuals helping me along the way building Suffolk the way that it is today. I get a lot of credit for it. I'm proud of that. But as we all know, success has many fathers. And I believe Suffolk has both a lot of mothers and a lot of fathers. And we want to talk about a lot of those people who we admire and have known a long time. And again, I was an intern here, so I got to know them and see that firsthand. But I think something interesting you hit on there, you split off from Peabody, you started an open shop construction company. Today, Suffolk Construction, which we're going to get to what you're all about today, but you are obviously a union contractor. When did that transition happen and how did that come about? It's a very interesting story. It was back in about 1994 where we had grown to become the largest non-union company in the northeast part of the country. And it wasn't sitting well with a lot of the politicians and a lot of the government agencies as well, too, because we were starting to compete with a lot of the union companies. And we were directly competing with PVD Construction at that particular point in time, my brother and I. And that didn't end well because, we, unfortunately, we didn't talk for almost 20 years because of that level of competition. But I respect him. And now today, I'm fortunate to say, you know, he and I are very, very close friends, which is great. But I think when we started growing the organization in downtown Boston, we were doing a job, the JFK building, downtown Boston, back at City Hall. And it was a 46-story tower. It was a gut renovation of about a little over 50 or $60 million for the GSA. And the government came to us and asked us, we really prepared to take on a job that size, non-union in downtown Boston. And obviously, at 34 years old, I said, absolutely, am I ready? Buckle my seatbelts, here we go. And when the job started, we started to have a lot, a lot of union problems. And at the end of one Friday afternoon, late in the fall, there were a fire that happened on the top of the building. It was a large explosion. And flames, you could see them for probably five miles from Boston. Never forget that day, beautiful blue day, clear skies. And it was ugly. 
it was real ugly. And unfortunately, in the roof, they had what is called transite pipe. I only tell you that because transite board, it blew up because of the fire. And it was asbestos laden. So there was asbestos particles flying over all everything. So OSHA got involved. Everybody else got involved. And finally, that was the point in time where I don't want to tell specifically who asked us to get together. But there's a group of people, a guy named Joe Nigro, you guys would know that real gentleman, asked me to sit down with the city, with City Hall, with the governor's office and with other things. How do we work something out so we don't have this type of consternation in our beautiful city of Boston that we all loved? Because it was a disservice to a lot of different people at the end of the day because we were really pioneering in the city, which is an old-fashioned, ironclad union environment. You know, when you're young, sometimes you do things that you're foolish and you don't really realize the dangers involved. And I didn't understand the danger or some of the damage I could be doing from a relationship point of view. And that's part of growing and maturing. So thank God it worked all well. We worked out a territorial arrangement with everybody. And I would say that moment in time was a catalyst for the company to have permission from clients to build larger, more geographically dispersed projects. Mm -hmm. Because people didn't want us to get on big jobs because they were concerned about we'd bring the unions with us from a picketing point of view and causing them problems. Or alternatively, they were concerned that we might be over our skis and weren't capable of doing that, that size of job. And the company was trying to grow into that as opposed to out of that. And so we were fortunate that that union agreement, territorial agreement, gave us the opportunity to compete in the city areas on large-scale projects and work with them outside the 12080 area in a very collaborative way where we didn't lose our competitiveness at the end of the day. And so it was a pretty interesting story. And I, I would say this to you, both Mike and Tom, is that I learned a lot from that about relationships and how important that the idea of a hammer-to-a-nail mentality is not always the right way to solve contested issues. The idea of diplomacy, and at 34 years old, if you're young, and you've got fire in your belly, and you're really a hammer to a nail mentality, it doesn't really seem that clear. And so to me, it was a really an awakening as a young person in business to say, listen, we can shake hands and do business at the same time. Interesting, because on the construction management side, you're interacting with the developer or the capital or the institution, and then you're kind of a bridge between the folks who are doing the physical building and managing that process and making sure everything happens on time and on budget. But you're living in both worlds. You're living in a few very different worlds at that point. But building those relationships and the trust in the community that you were going to get it done, that equips you to expand the platform over the years, I'm sure. As I said before, is it, I use this as a way of describing to younger people in business, is that if you think about opportunities and problems in your careers and you look back, every industry, especially real estate construction, has challenges every single day. There isn't a day that goes by that you don't run into a challenge, you need somebody else to support you to get over that particular hurdle, no matter how high it is or low it is. In a retrospect, the hurdles that I ran over that I couldn't get over and had challenges on when I was younger was because I didn't have strong enough relationships. So success, in my opinion, if you have sort of the basics ingredients, is fundamentally how strong a relationships you have that will provide you with the currency to solve the day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-week problems that you're going to come across. If a person wants to create a problem in real estate construction, they can. It's very easy. You're not building a watch. You're building something very, very unique and very, very challenging. And it requires a lot of people to be involved. And when you run into those challenges, do you have enough currency in your bank, political currency and social currency and friendship currency, relationship currency, to 
come together, solve the problem in a collaborative way so it becomes a win-win situation. And to me, it's one of the most important, I think, lessons that I've learned over my career. Yeah, and I think if people, if you say the name John Fish, that's something people think of right away is a master of relationship building in a really positive way. And we've witnessed it even before our career started. I think we knew a lot about you. But growing this platform to what it's become today has really been around those relationships that you've built. And, you know, I don't think there's anyone that knows how to do that as well as you do. But at the end of the day, it's trust and it's delivering and it's helping people even when maybe they can't help you, which you do plenty of that we'll talk about. But it's been fascinating to watch. And you hit on it earlier too, John, relationships are incredibly important, but it's the people around you that you've surrounded yourself with here at Suffolk internally, not just your external relationship and capital, but the culture that you've built here at Suffolk and the people that you have worked with to build Suffolk. And we just want to hear a couple minutes on how you've fostered such a culture, particularly as you expand Suffolk nationally. You've acquired some companies. You've expanded to California, to South Florida. You're a national powerhouse now, not just a New England powerhouse. A, how did you build the culture here that you built? And then B, how did you maintain that culture nationally as you grew? Culture, as I think we all know, is a term that comes out of Harvard Business School. Culture eats strategy for lunch, end of the day. And to me, it took 22 years at Suffolk to discover our core values. Because you don't define your core values, you discover them. And why it took that long is because as a young business individual... You go through different periods of growth and development and maturity. And at a young person, which I did in the 80s, I made mistakes. I was sometimes too tough. I didn't sort of relent sometimes when you should, you know, if you really be honest about yourself, because it was like playing football. And that's not how you play business. And as you grow a little older and you get into your early 30s and mid 30s, you really start to realize what are the ingredients that you really want to represent and who you are in your heart. And who do you want to associate yourself with? And so 22 years into suffer, we discovered our core values. And they were passion, integrity, hard work, and professionalism. And then it was about five years ago, we discovered our fifth core value, which was caring. And it was all around where the pandemic was. I'll talk a little bit more about that. And so to me, the litmus test that we use to hire people, well, lens, is do those particular individuals... Will they fit into Suffolk? We have what here, as I'm proud to say, is like a cult-like culture. We aren't the right company for everybody. People, you know, would say they work too hard. We don't work. People work hard. Companies don't work hard. The people work hard. And that's because they are driven to succeed and they don't want to fail. I often find people that say don't want to come in the construction business because it's a hardworking business. Well, if you don't want to go in the construction and go somewhere else, you're still going to work hard because that's your personality. We're not going to change that. The point being is we are old-fashioned construction company, blue collar, that's proud of what we do. And we have to work hard to accomplish the things that clients want us to do. And that's the nature of the business. But we have to be passionate about it. We have to be focused on it. We have to make sure. And we do it with a sense of professionalism, which is very, very important to me. And what I would close by saying about the cultural side is that culture is probably the most important, intangible thing one can actually see. You have to have it inside you. It's got to, that feeling's got to burn and it's contagious. And that's why when people join this organization, once they get through the first year, it's a career, unless they go off on their own, which I'm proud of and I'm happy for them. I pat the back on the back. 
And if they come here for the first three months, and they, there's organ rejection. It just doesn't work itself out. And I don't like that. But at the end of the day, to me, we're trying to build something unique, something special, and something most importantly, that everybody here is proud of getting up every single day, come to work, and really want to be the best at what they do. Not the biggest, but they want to be the best. The few people that do move on from Suffolk, they end up being your clients so often. It's like a Goldman Sachs, McKinsey type thing. In fact, I would tell you a lot of some of our ex-employees are our best clients nationally, not just locally. We're very, very proud of because to me, I think America is the land of opportunity. And I often hearken back to the story I share with you about myself. I should have been a laborer. Honestly, should have been a laborer if Dick Duffy didn't identify me at Tabor Academy. But he did. And so when I think about opportunity, I love to take young men and women that have ambition, that understands winning is not normal. It takes a really exceptional behavior to be successful. And it doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. If you're willing to have that and you want to go out on your own, all the power to them. I support 100%. Now, as we all know, it's not easy, especially in our business where capital is a scarce commodity, but it's very, very much required in construction real estate. If you don't have it, it's a very difficult thing to overcome. So I often say that to people, but all the power to people. I want people to be more successful than they ever thought they could be. And if I can help them, that's what my role and responsibility is. We have the privilege of working with and for Rob Griffin, who oftentimes when we see the two of you in a room together, you know, you never know what can happen because that passion is something that you guys share. One thing you mentioned about old school construction firm, blue collar environment here, but you layer onto that such an element of innovation that's constant. And we're saying we could be at Google in this room looking around and walking past the Mission Control Center downstairs. It's just incredible what you guys have done from a technology standpoint. And all the investments and the research that you're doing, you layer that into your business every day. So I think it's combining what you've done, which is that old school, get it done mentality with being incredibly innovative and changing the construction industry, you know, every day here. I learned a lesson back in 2009 during the Great Recession. I'll never forget it. We were over at Rose Wharf in an offsite with the executive committee of the organization. And it was right time Lehman happened. And my phone rang in about a four-hour period of time. And we had lost probably 60% of our backlog. Jobs being put on hold. Jobs being canceled. And I had never been through anything like that before. You know, here I was 48 years old in 2008. And I was shocked because the company had succeeded quite a bit over the last 20 some odd years. And this was the first time that we really couldn't control our destiny. And I said to myself, as I got over the initial shock and sickness, from a feeling point of view, and I couldn't show it because I'm the CEO, you got to absorb that internally. And that's okay. It doesn't feel good, but that's your responsibility. I said to myself, we had to think differently after that. So in 2009, 10, We started going through a transformation. We started saying to ourselves, we can't just be another contractor. We have to look at different companies, different comparison companies, Apple, Google, IBM. And what we did at that particular point, we really, by looking at different comparison companies, what's the strength of our functional side of our business? Most construction companies don't have a strong functional side. We have a powerful functional side of our business. How do we support our field operations? We make substantial investments. You talk about the cold app that we have as well, too, in mission control. Those are all substantial investments. But we invested heavily in technology and even data back then to try to give ourselves a competitive advantage because I saw other companies outside a category doing that. And because I'm private, I own 100% of the company. I'm fortunate at the size we're at. Today, we're at about a $6 billion business. 
we could invest money back into the business for the future. Our business is sort of bitten by the instant gratification bug. You know, you do something today, you would get paid tomorrow, and you wouldn't spend it the next day. That's not the way I focus on this. To me, I'm playing the long game at the end of the day. And so what's happened is, is that we put ourselves in a situation where we've become extremely innovative from a cultural point of view. We have what I call a no-fault culture, is that I want people to be able to go out there and try things out and don't be concerned or afraid that you're going to make a mistake because we learn from mistakes. We don't lose from mistakes as long as we don't make too many of them at the end of the day. But that's how we learn and experiment and take the risk with your partnership to people around you to try to innovate and do things a little differently at the end of the day. And the idea of using data, we're probably one of the only construction companies in the country today that has a clean data lake. We've spent nine years putting that together. We have 29 data analysts in this company. I don't think there's a construction company in the country that has 29 data analysts. Most have zero. There are tech companies that don't have that many. And the idea behind that is how do we leverage data in a way that makes us more predictive on a going forward basis? And I often say to people, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And I hearken back to 2010. And really the concept to me, again, I copy a lot of different things with a sense of pride, is that Billy Bean, what did, he was the first one to introduce the Oakland Athletics using data to really put forth a strategy on how to invest the limited capital that the Oakland A's had at the end of the day and how do they get the best performance. And that's exactly what we started playing back in 2012 up to 2017. And now what's happening today going forward is we're starting to integrate artificial intelligence into our data. And what's important about that is, as we all know, data is oxygen to artificial intelligence. And because we've been working on data and have such a powerful, clean data lake and a lot, a lot of information in that, we're able to leverage that to our advantage in a very significant way. That level of significance today, relatively speaking, is the tip of the iceberg because we're all in on data. We're all in on artificial intelligence. And I say this very humbly, Suffolk wants to be the convener nationally for how artificial intelligence is going to disrupt the real estate construction category. And I think we all know that that is gonna happen. Let me just give you one example, architecture. And that's why we created three and a half years ago, Suffolk Design. We're not looking to design buildings. We're looking to take technology, artificial intelligence, and leverage applications throughout the world on what's out there right now. The guy named Luis Vidal is an architect that I know pretty well. And he said to me, I said, how's artificial intelligence going to affect architecture? And by the way, Luis Vidal designed the Logan Airport, the red roof building over there. He's from Spain. He's a wonderful human being. And he said to me, architects are going to turn into what we call selectors. They're going to go online, like Frank Lloyd Wright's type of design, Falling Water, and show me 50 of those different designs around the world and the architect's going to help a client select the right details in that design. And then they're going to use technology to incorporate those details into an overall program at the end of the day. So to me, I think that's the first disruptor that's going to happen in our category in a significant way over the next two to three to four years. We don't want to compete with architects. We work with them all over the place. But how can we maintain a level of technological capabilities to be in the forefront of that conversation, to provide our clients with a sense of predictability and accuracy that we currently today don't have on a consistent level because we're human beings at the end of the day. And then coupled with that, the concept of trying to introduce sustainability through technology 
into the built world. And I often remind people, when we talk about climate change, buildings, the real estate category, gives off 40% of all carbon emissions in the globe. 40%. Why shouldn't the construction real estate category be the leader in the effort to try to reduce our carbon footprint as a country and if not a world? And to me, it starts during the design phases of the project. So how do we design these projects more sustainably, more cost-effectively, and understanding the carbon footprint and how that building is going to operate into the future? And in the existing buildings, how do we decarbonize those buildings? And what's a thoughtful way of going about those? So by having a design capability, which we do, and we have a program called Suffolk Sustainability, we have a whole group of sustainability individuals that work with our design team and work with our construction team to try to figure out how do we advise our clients and support our clients, give our clients options of costs versus value creation on the concept of sustainability moving forward. So it's an exciting time, but I also would say to both of you gentlemen, it's a challenging time to be candid with. I think we all know that nothing's ever easy in real estate construction. That's probably why we all love it. There's no doubt it's challenging. We're going to get to some of the things that are going on nationally and globally right now. But you walked us through some of the things that are differentiators for Suffolk. And clearly your approach is, is purposeful, incredibly strategic, and you surrounded yourself with these great professionals and groups of people that, that help you differentiate yourselves. And the result is an incredible resume. And we're not going to go through it all right now, but Millennium Tower, Winthrop Tower, Encore Casino, Logan Airport. It's a long list and we don't have enough time to go through it all. Incredible city-changing projects, region-changing projects. What do you see in the next five to 10 years? Clearly, the age of the billion, $2 billion mixed-use development has kind of quieted down right now. Capital markets have tightened up a bit. How do you see the next five years playing out in your world, in the construction industry? What, what are some of the storm clouds and what are you expecting? The biggest challenge out there currently today is the idea, when we get to unpack this, is the cost is greater than the value we're creating. And I think people are waiting for interest rates to come down, whether it be three movements this year or whether it's going to be six movements during 24. We're hoping you could tell us from the Real Estate Roundtable discussions. I think we're going to see three if I was to handicap, even close to five or six at the end of the day. I think there's too much concern about the inflationary issue we can talk about a little later. My sense is the challenge is construction costs. And the other type of thing is affordable housing. And they also work against each other at the end of the day. And what also is going to work against us, which a lot of people are not talking about, is the labor shortage. Because in construction and real estate, COVID, a lot of people retired early. And a lot of other people, younger people, did not go into the business. We have a tremendous shortage of labor in the construction nationally right now. We have zero unemployment. We don't have 3.4% like the country. We have zero unemployment. Coupled with that, we have an immigration situation right now where it's not attainable, attainable anymore, is that we don't have a program that's bringing in first, allowing first-gen people to come here to actually go to work every single day. And if we take a look at our GDP and we take a look at our economy and our population, the only way to grow our GDP is increase the labor pool. And that fundamentally, and I've been to Washington as representative of real estate, wanted to be talking about immigration policy. Can we go back to the Gang of Eight back in 2013 and try to get something put together very f- similar to what they had there because they were on the 10-yard line at that particular point in time? But I would highlight to everybody that we need to solve the immigration problem. And if we don't, we're not going to be able to solve for the productivity issue 
and labor. And what's going to happen in construction, I'm going to predict this, in the next two to three years, construction costs are going to continue to go up. They're not going to go down. And the reason for that is material prices right now, post-supply chain issues, have leveled off. We understand the level of predictability. You're going to see 2 or 3% increase, and that's because the commodity costs are going to go up and down. But it's going to be relatively predictable on the material side. But the labor side, there's going to be a scarcity of labor. And just like we're seeing in the pilot union, in the teachers union, in the nurses union, you've seen these exponential raises that have gone on we've never seen before. And plus, you've got basic prevailing wages across the board going up. So when these collective bargaining agreements come available in the unions over the next 18 to 24 to 36 months, you're not going to see 3 or 4% raises. I'm trying to highlight that to people because we can't solve the construction cost issue and we can't deal with the affordable housing issue if we don't get the materials and labor that go into the solution solved or at least have a sense of predictability where it's going at the end of the day. Tom, let me answer your question about what I think the biggest challenges in the next five years are. I do think it's affordable housing. It's workforce housing not just affordable, but it's workforce. I also think it's graduate housing. I think it's faculty housing. You know, I chair the Brigham Women's Hospital. We bring a chief in from different parts of the country or we bring nurses in from other parts of the country. They can't afford housing. So we may have to start thinking about these institutions in the around New England area. Are they willing to or should they start thinking about do they leverage their balance sheet for the betterment of creating student housing and workforce housing and faculty housing on a going forward basis. I'm a believer, yes, and I'm looking at that in the sense of, could we talk about that in the context of maybe, is there a pilot compromise if in fact the schools and the hospitals are willing to come to the table? Debated that with some of the people that are in that space, and I think it's open for still debate today, but I think something has to give. It take a couple more hours to talk more about it, but I'm passionate about it because I think Boston, in a high-cost environment, like New York City, if we don't solve for the housing issue, affordable workforce, teachers, and support faculty housing, we're going to dumb ourselves down over the next decade, and the next generation is going to feel that pain in a big, big way. Yeah, there's no doubt. And I spend my time in the multifamily space and development space, John, as you know, and these are the issues that we talk about on a daily basis with capital, with investors from across the country. And the reality is, Everybody wants to invest in Greater Boston. In my opinion, you can look at AFIRE, you can look at PRI, you can look at NAREIT, and look at all their data. Boston's a top five market for investable capital. I think it's number one based on the conversations that we've had. And so we've got to find a way to make housing more affordable, to foster more development, more starts, more construction starts at the end of the day. So it's well said, and we appreciate it. It's also a good transition to your chairmanship of the real estate roundtable. We'd love a few minute explanation of that role. I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with the Real Estate Roundtable. Rob Griffin participates and keeps us up to speed, but love to hear you know, what you're doing down there. It's the collision of policy and capital and real estate. What's the tenor? What's going on down there? Give our listeners a bit of that. For our listeners' point of view, is Real Estate Roundtable is, and I say humbly, the largest real estate organization in the country, and I think probably the most respected on Capitol Hill and at the White House. Jeff DeBoer is the CEO. He's been there for over 20-some-odd years, and he's a phenomenal individual. He understands the business, he understands the trends, and he understands the personalities, and most importantly, he understands the politics that support real estate at the end of the day. And we have all the major real estate organizations, both publicly and privately, as members in the country that are there. And unfortunately, we have a capital business, a design business, and a tech business, uh, but we're not developers. I'm sitting in a very, very interesting seat, and I think they brought me in because construction costs and where things were going in the construction category 
affected real estate to such a degree that they thought I could add a lot of value. And hopefully, and I say humbly, I have. And it's one of the best opportunities I've ever had. And But what we've been focusing on is it's primarily policy. And the idea of back coming off the 2017 Tax Reform Act, that right now is starting to rear its head right now. A lot of it is expiring going into 25, 26, mostly 25 and 24. And we've got to be very, very cautious that we don't lose ground on the gains that we made or the stability that we achieved back in 2017. That's one of my biggest concerns right now. The other side of the table is we come forward with sustainability, which real estate has a big play in it. How do we make sure policy doesn't get polluted with bad advice and counsel from people that are looking out after their own interests? Let me be clear about that. Right now, we talk about decarbonization. We talk about incentives. We talk about giving people the opportunity to electrify buildings and things like that, but they need subsidies in order to do that. How do we make sure as an organization we provide Congress, both the Democrats and the Republicans, with the right documentation and the right support, both from a social, a political, and economic perspective, that they can make good value judgments to create good policy? And so we've been heavily involved in that. We've also been heavily involved in this whole issue of as a real estate, commercial real estate has crashed. In my opinion, it's going to come back. It always does. It's resilient. But we're in a crisis right now. We have no capital available. I think people understand that. There's no such thing as price discovery today at the end of the day. And so therefore, how do we have good policy to support what's going on? And let me give an example. You saw about the regional banks. They came out with forward guidance back in June 29th. And that June 29th guidance came out of the OCC, the FDIC, and the Federal Reserve. And what that was is it talked about how do they look at office buildings right now in the perspective of their portfolio? Is it mark to mark or is there any type of opportunity to interpret so the overall valuation? What we worked on with Treasury, which I went to three or four times and met with people in Congress, of take a look at what the borrowers, what the steady strength of the borrowers over a period of time. And right now, because of the COVID situation, we went through a situation where inflation up to 9%, interest rates skyrocketed in such a period of time that we have not experienced that in our lifetime. So it's a point in time we just need time to solve problems. We're not saying bad assets should exist. No, but we're saying if these assets are good assets with a creditworthy bother, we need time. Because at the end of the day, the victim of this unfortunate decision-making that could happen, which I don't think it's going to, will be the regional banking system and then the taxpayers. Now, I think right now we've avoided a lot of that. I think because there's been a lot, a lot of conversation going on, not just the real estate roundtable, but it's many municipalities around the country that are speaking with the same tongue on this issue. So I feel that step one, we've overcome a lot of the potential short-term problems, but there's still a lingering effect about price discovery and capital availability. And again, I think real estate will come back, offices will come back, We just need to be patient and we need to make sure we right-size everything as we move forward in a very, very tumultuous time. It's a tumultuous time, to say the least. And in the backdrop here is probably the most polarized political situation we've been in. You're a diplomatic person. You have allies and friends on both sides of the aisle. And you've done a great job of sort of fostering a bipartisan approach locally, regionally, nationally, and your involvement in a bunch of different organizations We're not going to spend too much time on this, but what do you think right now as a country we're dealing with going into the year? I think it's a real challenge. And when I look at this, I use a word at Harvard Business School, VUCA, volatile, uncertain, chaotic, complex, and ambiguous. And I think right now we've never, never probably been in a situation where we have these sort of conflicting issues going on globally, locally, and nationally. What I mean by that, you know, is 
Israeli situation is absolutely hellacious, almost unthinkable. I've got a very close relationship with Jonathan and Robert Kraft, and I've communicated a lot with them, and I know Robert's been out in front on this issue, and I support him 100%. And to me, I think the issue of the political side of things right now is just chaotic. And I think what we need to do, we need to stop thinking about the idea of a Republican or a Democrat. We need to start thinking about being a patriot. We live in the best country in the world. I just came back from New Zealand, first time ever. Wonderful country. It's not America. I went to Australia. It's not America. I've been all over the world. It's not America. Democracy is messy. We all understand that but so on all these other governments. But it's the best form of government, and we get the best country. What we need to do, we need to figure a way to understand what we have and how we take responsibility as adults for the next generation. Because unfortunately, we are the first generation in the history of America to turn over this country to the next generation in a worse condition than we got. There's a high degree of social and moral responsibility we have. Look through that lens, understand how much responsibility do we want to take to try at least to slow that conversation down and turn the tide in a very, very acceptable way. And I take that very, very personally, to be perfectly candid. I'm not going to say I can move the needle at all, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to be speak my point about what's going on in Israel and what's going on in Washington and what's going on in the Democratic Republican system. To me, we're all patriots. We need to understand, let's not blow it for the next generation. Your leadership in that regard is meaningful in this area and sure in other parts of the, the country. But we living here and being in the business community and just being citizens of the Boston area, you know, people look to you as a little bit of a beacon on a lot of these issues. You, know, you have a very global view. You're involved in organizations and discussions that give you a perspective that's unique. So I think that your leadership is appreciated. We're always looking to you for thoughts on different issues, a lot of them not even related in any way to real estate or our business. But it goes back to what you were saying before is the next generation. And I think a lot of what you've focused your time and energy, which is incredible to us because everything that's going on in this building, and then you have you know the rest of your world where you're helping lead some very important institutions. And you talk about the next generation. A lot of this is, you know, we said long game before. A lot of this is long game. You're doing a lot of work, philanthropic and otherwise, that you're not going to see the benefit of in the next two to five years. But it's steering these organizations. We talked about the Brigham and you're involved in, with Mass General Brigham as a system. Boston College, Tom and I are BC alums, and you've been at the helm of the board of BC it's a pretty special campus. It's a special institution. What has that experience been like? And how do you figure out where you have capacity to get involved in these? It's a passion for me. I, I want to be very, very clear. If it wasn't for an individual out there, I more than likely wouldn't be involved in a lot of things involved because he taught me a great deal. He was my mentor is Jack Connors. I think we all know very, very well. And Jack got me involved in the Brigham. He also got me involved in BC. Jack taught me a lot of the ropes. You know, I've been involved with Jack for probably about 25 years which I'm very, very proud of. And I consider him to be a world-class individual and somebody that's been a tremendous mentor to me and to all of us. Speaking of patriots, he's quite a guy. And my point is about the hospitals, Brigham, in Mass General Brigham, is it like the real estate industry right now, just a little different, like a lot of industries, the financial industry right now, is it everything right now, especially post-COVID, is being re-engineered in a much different degree than it was prior to COVID. And it's going to continue that way. Our world is turned upside down, and we got to deal with the new norm. We can't sort of avoid that at the end of the day. 
in the issue of cost. You know, we're going through this integration right now. We've got the Dana Fiber situation. But we as a system are not the only ones. Go- Everybody else, Northwell Hospital, right. Columbia Presbyterian, Memorial Sloan Kettering, they're all challenged with cost, nursing shortages, and things like that. So to me, to be in the conversation at Brigham being chair of the board and work with Jonathan Kraft at the general and discussing and working with the chiefs of the hospitals and the administrators and people like that of how do we chart our future? Because it's not really going to affect me. And the question is, do I care? That's why I do that. Okay, why did Jack Connors do the things that he's doing at Camp Harvey? Because he cares. It's not putting any money in his pocket. But Brigham is, to me, healthcare is one of those type of things that it affects everybody. And when you think about healthcare, what's the most important thing we do? Put the patient first. And to me, that's why I'm involved in Brigham. On the Boston College side, on my second term as chair of the board over there, I'm going on seven years. The first chair is a non, non-alum. Exactly. Very, very lucky. And my hero in my life is Father William Leahy, to be yeah. perfectly candid with you. And I love the school. But what I love about the school is the Jesuit traditions, men and women for others. And I say that as a Catholic, but I also say, as you know, you know, probably 35% of our students are not Catholics over Boston College. And you two graduated, and your sister went to Boston College as well, too, Megan. And to us, there's something special in the water at Boston College. And let me unpack that a little bit. As we've gone through all the challenges in the world, what Boston College is about, when I talk about the word men and women for others, it's an environment that it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay not to be perfect. But it's not okay not to be nice. It's not okay not to care. It's not okay to be selfish at the end of the day. So all the trappings that society pulls on us right now and social media and things like that, you have permission at Boston College to be yourself, to come to school with your problems, to come to school with who you really are, to come to school with to cleanse your soul if that's what's needed. But it's in a safe environment that you can tell that people care about you and care about your successes and you care about other successes. Boston College, and I say humbly, has never had a stronger applicant pool, has never been in a better position. Now, things could always change tonight. We know that. We've got football problems, NCAA, name, image, and likeness, and a lot of other things that are going on. But at the end of the day, you think about Messina College, which is the old Pine Manor, what we're doing there. You think about our athletic programs. You think about mission and ministry over there. And you think about overall the culture of Boston College. It is such a special place for everybody. And we want everybody to feel welcome there. And everybody at Boston College is equal. There's only one important ingredient at Boston College, that we display a sense of caring, compassion, and empathy for everybody. Because we're all God's children at the end of the day. Well said. As graduates, it's great to hear that somebody like yourself is at the helm and has your hand on the rudder at such a great institution. And it makes us feel good about the future of our alma mater, that's for sure. And, you know, we're talking a bit about Boston College and Brigham and Women's, which are these incredibly important institutions to this region and to the country, frankly. But that's not where your leadership and support ends. Suffolk Cares is your philanthropy here at Suffolk, and you and your wife have been very active in the community. I don't think there's a fundraising dinner or event that Suffolk Cares and John doesn't show up. You're really a leader from a support standpoint. And Mike and I, as you know, are 
very involved. We're board members of the Corey C. Griffin Foundation, which, and, and we get emotional talking about it, as you can tell, but it's something that we care incredibly deeply about. Corey was a best friend of ours and a college classmate at Boston College, and we lost him, and we started this foundation with Rob and Mike and Casey and Kathy and the family. And you were really the first person to show up and you've been there for 10 years and your generosity, your support to that organization, which means so much to us as one of a hundred in the city that you support, let us thank you on behalf of ourselves, our board members, and really the city and the region for your leadership and your support there from a philanthropic standpoint. It, we can tell you firsthand, it changes a lot of lives and really moves the needle. You and Mike, again, I want to congratulate you and your sister, Megan, who's very much involved in the Corey C. Foundation, Griffin Foundation. And as you know, Rob is one of my closest friends, along with Kathy, his wife, and his family. And when I think of the Corey Griffin Foundation, I think about what exemplifies what the world should be, what a human being should be. And I think of Corey Griffin as, in the same context, I think of Boston College. Somebody that tries to give and wants to give and will give to anybody, anyone, to make them better. Corey Griffin's legacy will live on because it's so unique and it's so special. A lot of times these issues flame out, as we all know, because we've been involved in them for years. This is one that isn't going to not. Because to me, it's a beacon of hope. It's a beacon of light of what we all want to be and aspire to be. And more importantly, what our community should be at the end of the day. When you think about Corey Griffin, What's the first thing that comes to your mind? A smile. Happiness, happiness, contentness, and caring and giving. So if that is correct, and we think about the tumult that's going on in our world today, whether it be financial, social, business, or else like that, what better nutrition to nurse us all back to health in a chaotic world and have that type of prescription put on our plate? And so to me, Corey Griffin is that beacon of hope, not just for Boston College, not just for the real estate industry, not just for Boston, for our society. And I think it's so important that young men and women like your family and your sister as well, too, and I want to thank her, continue on with that legacy. Because if not, it's going to be another substantial loss that we take it out of our community. And we just can't let that happen. I can tell you this. You can count on me, and I know I can count on you. So to me, I know that's never going to happen. For all the calls you get and all the inquiries about different events and causes you can support, your reaction time is incredible. We thank your whole team here for always showing up. You know, in our mind, we talk about Corey Griffin, and we quickly transition to talking about Corey's kids in our mind, who are these children who are going back to the Jack Connors and Camp Harborview sort of mindset. What can you do that's more important than helping a young kid or a child that could use a hand, whether it's in healthcare or academics or whatever it may be at home, we're lucky to be involved. So we appreciate that. And those words that you just shared were very meaningful for us. You know, I think, John, we love being here in the office. This for a Friday afternoon, I will tell you that there's nowhere that's buzzing like the Suffolk office on a Friday afternoon, which I think everyone should take a visit and take some notes because the energy is great in here. You have so many inputs of information you're well-read, you're learned, you have a pulse on really so many different things in the world. Where do you get your information? How do you process this all? Your schedule is insane. You know, what's interesting is that being dyslexic and severe dyslexic, I don't read a lot of books. I read papers every single morning, the first thing I get in, you know, Wall Street Journal, cover to cover, you know, the Globe, the Herald, uh, 
Financial Times, which is a very, very important paper to me as well, too, and the New York Times uh, read. I listen a lot, and I listen to what people have to say. And being a visual learner, going to meetings and observing things, and like I'll give you an example, I say this respectfully, you know, being the chair of the Federal Reserve, you know, that was one of the most impactful boards I ever had, but what it taught me, what Boston College, chair of the Chamber of Commerce has taught me. And so I'm learned by, I'm experiential learner at the end of the day. And to me, that's why I want to remain active. I want to continue to learn. And I want to offer the experiences that I've had to the younger generation, like you and Tommy. I mean, you're the future. And I often see people, you know, I'm 63, so I'm never going to retire. But I want to recognize the importance of stepping out of the way at the appropriate time for the next generation. My sort of classification of success or definition of success is how do I work myself out of a job and watch somebody do better than I've done at the end of the day and do a better job than I've done? This is giving me nothing more pride and sort of happiness I will have and have when I see these young individuals, not just in my business, but in the community, like the two of you, running the system and running the, the city in a very, very thoughtful, caring, compassionate way. And what's happening is we all know there's only a small group of people that want that baton. Where before it might have been just one Jack Connors. There's no such thing as the world has changed. There is not the Jack Connors in any world. There's not the Chad Giffords anymore. There's not the Ted Kellys anymore. It's just not that style. Today, it's a collection of people doing the work of one in the past. And so to me, how do we make sure that next generation comes together with a sense of not individualism, but a sense of we in a team that really wants to make and keep and preserve the city of Boston, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the special environment that it is today. It's again, it's a game of inches and I'm willing to play it. You two guys are willing to play it. And I hope others, and I know they are, are willing to play it as well. We're all following you closely. You're an incredible role model for the city, for young guys like us, not just in real estate, but in, in any industry. So we appreciate that. We know you're famous for your 4 a.m., 4.30 a.m. wake up times. You're in the office. You're Again, having been here for a summer, I don't know if I beat you into the office more than two or three times, despite my trying. But you work incredibly hard. Is there anything you do for fun? If you find that hour, what are you doing? Are you golfing? Are you fishing? What's John Fish do to let loose? You can do three things in life. You have your family, you can have business, and you can have a very, very active social. I don't believe that to be the case. I think there's uh, sacrifices one has to make if they really want to be special and they want to do something unique. And to me, my family's number one. I got three daughters. I've got two grandchildren right now and a third one on the way, which I couldn't be more proud of. And when I'm not working, my family is the most important thing to me. I know people talk a lot about that, but I can tell you genuinely when I spend time with my granddaughter, Abigail or Christopher, or I spend time with my three girls, and then I say to myself, and you realize that as you get a little older, you know, my wife's my best friend. She's my high school sweetheart, and she's my best friend. And to me, I'm, she's put up with me for all these years. I'm the luckiest person in the world. And as we all know, and be very candid with it, all of us have issues. I do. Everybody does. Every family has issues. But at the end of the day, the level of caring and compassion and thoughtfulness that you can come home to, it makes everything worthwhile at the end of the day. And so I stick to my family. I stick to my business. I don't have a big, big social calendar at the end of the day. And I feel like I'm not leaving anything out. But what I really would hope to do at the end of the day is making sure I really preserve and protect those two things to the best of my ability and most importantly, my family. Really well said. It's the best answer we've had to that question on this podcast series. That's for sure. 
I think we've used a lot of your time here, John. You're, again, we said it a moment ago, you're one of the busiest people in the city. And, you know, we're over our hour, but we just wanted to say, again, thank you on behalf of ourselves, our colleagues, and really the city for all your leadership. Thank you for giving us the time today. Our listeners are really going to enjoy this podcast. So we appreciate the time. We look forward to staying in touch and doing a lot of great things together. So thank you, John. We hope that you'll let us come back and You've been generous and supportive of a lot of people in the city, including people in our family and our father and our sister and our brothers. So it's special for us to be here. There's not a lot of people I think you sit with for an hour in a conference room uninterrupted. So we appreciate carving out this time. And this has been a a real treat. I just want to say one last thing to you. And one of the reasons why it's important to me to spend time with you two gentlemen, because I do know your family so well. I just want to give your dad a shout out, if you don't mind. I've known your dad for probably 40 years in the city. I know he was a real estate lawyer for quite some time. He didn't go to BC. I know he went to UPenn. And when he got the nod in 2008 to become the head of the Irish program, and I sit back and I said, well, there wasn't a better person that really cared about that organization than he did. And he took it from a small, really underfunded, undercapitalized organization in 2008 and to where he left it off in 2020, pre-COVID, was probably the strongest program in the country for that organization. And your dad should be very, very proud. You guys, I know, are very, very proud of your dad at the end of the day. And I would just tell your dad that I'm very, very proud of him. And I'm grateful for our relationship and for all that he and how he's mentored you to do the things that you're doing to make Boston a special place and carry on with the Greeley legacy. So congratulations, you guys. Well, we appreciate that. Thank you, John. He was excited that we were coming in to spend time with you. And as you know, he's one of your biggest fans. So we're gonna have to teach him how to listen to a podcast, but he'll love to hear that. <laughs> well, you guys take care. Have a wonderful Thank you, John. Weekend. Thanks, Thanks so much. Bye-bye.